I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Alex Segura is the author of the Pete Fernandez mystery series set in Miami. He's written short stories that appeared in numerous anthologies and a number of best-selling and critically acclaimed comic books. He also co-writes the Lethal Lit podcast. This is the short version of his biography. I couldn't give you the long version without exhausting myself. So what we're going to do is talk to Alex, who's my guest today on The Literary Life, to go over all the myriad things that this kid from Miami does. We're proud to call him one of our own. We're celebrating the publication of the final Pete Fernandez mysteries called Miami Midnight, of which no one less than Robert Cray says... Expertly weaving the past and present, Alex Segura masterfully cranks the tension while revealing the demons that both haunt P.I. Pete Fernandez and drive him forward. Blackout will hook you on Fernandez and Alex Segura. Let's have more and soon. And we do have more. We have Miami Midnight. Alex, welcome 
to the literary life. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a, it's always, I was, we were chatting before. It's always a treat to be at books and books. It's like, I know, I've, I know a book has come out and we're celebrating it in a meaningful way when I'm here. So, well, and yeah. that's because of your background. I mean, you you grew up here in Miami, didn't you? Yeah. Born and raised. Um, so events here are a little different because it's, it's like, Alex, this is your life. You know, you <laughs> see, uh, I'll see a teacher from middle school. I'll see my parents. I'll see friends from different eras. It's almost like a nice culmination of all the work. Talk a little bit about what it was like growing up in Miami as a kid who loved to read and who loved to write. Yeah, I was born, you know, I was raised in Kendall and Westchester, so I was a suburbs kid. Uh, my parents are Cuban and they came over uh, as the Castro Revolution hit, like so many people. So uh, they came over in the early 60s. Yeah, yeah, and they were very young. And uh, I spent a lot of time with my abuelos, my grandparents, and um, I got into comics and crime fiction at a pretty early age, probably maybe younger than I should have. I remember pulling off a copy of The Godfather from my grandfather's shelf when I was like eight or nine. And then he saw me reading it and he was like, what are you doing? By then, Sonny had died and <laughs> a lot of stuff had happened. And I just kind of got this taste for really dark fiction. Uh, and comics, um, I have really vivid memories of walking to the comic shop down the street and just making that my world. I was a, I was a pretty bookish, introverted kid. but um, Well, and you also grew up at a time when there was a lot of dark fiction being written here i mean the work of charlie williford yeah yeah talk about some of the other writers that influenced you yeah i mean uh, the thing about williford's books is that they present miami as it is i feel like it's quirky it's weird it's not just this tropical paradise there's a lot of simmering danger under there and he uh it's not it's not you don't read a read a williford book for plot you read it for vibe and energy and tone and he's got this great flavor those uh Hoke Mosley books are things that I just read for comfort. I'll go back like uh, Hoke Mosley and, and anything by Elmore Leonard of the Florida stuff. I'll read just as a, as kind of comfort food. Um, Is it a Miami and South Florida that you recognize or were you too young to have really experienced it that way? I think it's a little, I was a little young. I mean, I have some memories of like, you know, the crime and things like that, but it, it's almost like an archeological experiment to go back and see what it was like because the, the Miami and the Pete books, is the Miami I remember. And it's, um, you know, we'll, we'll probably talk about this a little too, but, you know, as as I spend more time away from Miami, every book becomes more almost research intensive. So trips like this when I'm in town become almost like research trips. And, you know, I'll be taking a walk in the park with my wife and I'll mention, you know, this is a great spot for a murder. And she's like, you know, we're on vacation. <laughs> you really shouldn't be thinking, well, where's your head at? But that's kind of, I'm not good at vacationing. I'm not good at relaxing. And so even stuff like this is, studying oh thank you yes we're we're here at the uh cafe at books and books and alex is drinking a cappuccino and i'm having a uh a cortadito nice how's the coffee uh up in new york compared to miami i mean you can't top a cuban coffee so i mean uh, we were joking about this but when, when i told my wife that they'd give me coffee as a young kid her eyes just kind of bulged open like what what kind of a life did you lead but um you know, you can't top Cuban coffee. So coffee in New York is fine. Do you remember Enrique Fernandez at all? Was he at the Herald when you were there? I don't think I was there at the same time. Enrique had, uh, Fernandez uh, has written, uh, he's no longer with us, but mm -hmm. he has this great line about uh, Cuban food in, uh, in the United States. And he said, he talks about Cuban food in New York mm -hmm. City. And he says, the only thing Cuban about the about the most restaurants in New York City is Gloria Estefan coming out of the speaker right, system. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, Cuban food in New York is fine, but it's not Miami Cuban food. You know, no, it's, it's got not. this gourmet vibe that if you eat Cuban food in Miami, you know it's not about gourmet, it's about 
family style. You know, you're just getting a, a lot of good food and flavor. It's not about how that's presented. So you were a reader. You read all this stuff. You read Miami. You read Miami uh, mysteries and other mysteries as yeah. well. And then you discovered comics. Yeah, comics were really eye-opening for me. I mean, my dad was a fan and... Um, I grew my first comic book experience was at Archie, ironically, which is where my it's my day job uh, at Archie. Um, and so I think my mom just got that my first book for me to kind of quiet me down in, in line at Publix uh, as a little kid. And then um, it became this lifelong thing, which, you know, I, I, now I can kind of hold that over them and say, you know, you shouldn't have put them in the basement when I behave badly or the garage because that's the one thing they would take away if I did something wrong. It's like, well, your comics are going to go away. Um, so. Why, why is it that so many um, mystery writers, do you think, started off reading comics as well? I think of Brad Meltzer and yeah. I think of some others. Too. Yeah, Brad's a great example. I mean, I think it's just the weaving of the stories and it's this kind of propulsive narrative. Like every issue leads into the next one and you have this tapestry of story. And if you read enough comics, you basically have a novel. You know, it's uh, you, people write these books for years and years and years and it's almost an, these epic sagas that – it kind of tunes you into writing a novel, which is very much like two or three years worth of comics. Um, and these are very, you know, different and varied characters and colorful personalities. And, and that really fit into me with Miami and just the vibe here. Well, so let's talk about that long version of your bio. So mm -hmm. I know we've hinted at some of it. So mm -hmm. your day job is with Archie Comics. Right. Um, you also have a podcast. Right. Talk about that a little bit. So Lethal Lit was a podcast uh, I co-wrote with uh, Monica Gallagher. And uh, it's it's a fiction podcast. So it's it's recorded like a audio drama. Different actors voice different characters. But the, the, con, you know, the twist is that it's recorded to sound like a true crime podcast. So you listen to it and it sounds like serial or it sounds like accused or one of these uh, reported podcasts and a lot of found noise. And the story follows this young girl, Tig Torres, who comes from New York City to her small hometown of Hollow Falls, which is a fictional city like Twin Peaks, um, basically to reinvestigate these serial murders that happened in Hollow Falls that people have pinned on her aunt who died, who was, you know, people believe she committed these crimes and then killed herself. But Tig believes very strongly that her aunt was innocent and that it was somebody else. And so it tells the story of her as this kind of high school, like Nancy Drew, reinvestigating the, the crime and kind of dealing with the weight of the history this had, you know, the effect that these crimes had on the town and the pushback that the town has on it actually being solved. And where can people find Lethal Lit? Uh, you can find it on whatever podcast app. Called Apple, Lethal Lit. Lethal Lit, yeah. So very, there's one season cool. out now. And you know, his name, one of the best uh, five podcasts by the New York Times in 2018. Yeah, that was amazing. That's that was, pretty remarkable, yeah, yeah. isn't it? It was just a great validation of all the work. Um, you know, the, the Einhorn's Epic Productions produced it, and they were really passionate about getting it to sound So right. you write the stories mm -hmm. for it. We wrote the scripts, and we were involved in some some level of the recording, and uh, we created the characters. So, Which brings me to the fact that you've also written a number of comic books as yeah. well, right? So mm -hmm. you wrote the Black Ghost uh, noir mm -hmm. superhero tale. And then you've written some of the Archie stuff too. Yeah, which is kind of a dream. I mean, Archie yeah. was my introduction to the medium. And so um, when I got my job there doing publicity years ago, now I'm co-president. So I have more oversight over different things. It's like, how Tell me what that means. So when you say you're, you're overseeing the Archie, you're co-president of the Archie Comics. Mm -hmm. Are they a standalone group? Yeah, the, it's a standalone other, company. Yeah. It's a company just called Archie Comics. Family owned. Yeah, it's still wow. owned by uh, the same same 
same structure and um are they in riverdale close enough yeah no they're <laughs> we're up in pelham in westchester oh, yeah right? yeah yeah so um though it's never been confirmed that the riverdale and the archie comics is the riverdale new york oh, yeah true? yeah yeah. it's like this vague like metropolis type area like it's you know it's in the northeast because they have seasons but it's, i think what's so cool is that generations like my generation and your generation we can both share a knowledge of archie comics mm-hmm. You know, because that was something that I read when I was a kid. Yeah, and it's really in the limelight now with Riverdale the show and Chilling Adventures of Sabrina and now Katie Keene. So it's a whole new fandom has been brought in, which is amazing. So coming into that job, when I first did, I was doing marketing and publicity and I kind of sheepishly asked, like, can I write one of these comics? And that's that got the ball rolling. Which uh, was your first one? My first one was a, a story where Archie and his friends go to a Riverdale comic convention. And so it's called the big, the great Riverdale comic con. And it's about, um, solving this mystery and figuring out, even then there was a mystery (laughs) component, even in an Archie story, just figuring out who was dressed as this character and committing these kind of dastardly deeds at the comic convention. So it was funny. You have Jughead dressed as Spock and you have Archie dressed as like pure heart, the powerful. So it was fun. And it was, you know, I I don't go back and read that because you always cringe at your older stuff, but I'm glad it exists. (laughs) I also love it. what's coming up. You have uh, talk about that. Archie meets the B-52s. Yeah, soon. I think, yeah, next week, Archie meets the B-52s comes out and it's a one shot. And um, for stuff like these, we actually have to get the buy-in of the band. We have to, we reached out right. to the B-52s. Uh, the artist, Dan Parent, reached out to Fred Schneider and said, hey, wow. you know, we've done Ramones, we've done Kiss, we've done Blondie. Like, would you guys want to do it? And he said, we are totally in. We need, let's do it. Did Fred want to look at the look of it? Because I know yeah. he does his own. Yeah. He yeah, does his own illustration. Yeah, no, well. they, um, we sent everything to the management and they passed it to the band. And, um, you know, we've done so many of these collaborations and each one is unique. Like you're kind of dealing with the personalities of the musicians. Um, but the B-52s have been top to bottom, easy to deal with. Um and then the Ramones you have coming up. Yeah. And the remote kiss. Yeah. Ramones well. and kiss happened. And those, um, those were, you know, it just, I was a big Ramones fan as a kid and I love the B 52s and kiss. They're comic book characters themselves. So it, it was a, easy to just have them be themselves in Riverdale. So I think the challenge is like, what's your conceit? Like, how do you make each one different? They right. can't just be like the Archies are having a gig and then they open for this band. Like, so for the Ramones, they actually travel back in time to the CBGB's era and Kiss, like, oh wow, Kiss is like summoned from a different dimension, and they show up in Riverdale. And uh, I think the B fifty twos. I just said, let's just set it in the eighties. Like Archie was around in the eighties, the B fifty twos were around in the eighties, and that way you get the original lineup of the B fifty twos with with Ricky Wilson too. So you could go all the way back to the sixties. Yeah, and yeah, Archie yeah. can meet yeah. a lot of bands. We did the Monkeys as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah, that was neat. So <laughs> we drew cool. it. It started drawn in like the current modern style, and then Archie gets bonked on the head, and they're suddenly in the retro style and the monkeys are there. So now is there digital versions of these mm-hmm. comics as well? So people can experience them digitally. Yeah. Well. You can get them on the Archie app or comiXology is like the main vendor right. for digital comics. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's all over. It, the, the world has shifted. Hasn't yeah. It? yeah. 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 No, you know, the black ghost, which is, uh, the kind of the vigilante crime comic I created is, uh, is only digital. So you can only get it on comiXology. You know, I notice when Brad comes and does an event mm-hmm. at the bookstore and I'm sure it happens all across the country. Um, there is a good amount of people in the audience who come because they know him from his comics work. Mm-hmm. Does that happen with you too? When you make appearances? Yeah. You know, I'll always, even if it's just a Pete Fernandez event or something, um, I can always bank on one or two Archie comics. Like, what did you guys do? Because I think fans know he has some executive say in the company. So they, they have like very 
focused questions, which is neat. I, I like being a multi, I guess multi-platform is the best way to describe it. Like doing comics, doing podcasts, doing novels. Um, and Brad's an old friend. Like I've known Brad since I think I first got in the industry. He's such a kind, helpful guy. Like really one of, he one of the most my, generous people around, I think. I think before I'd even started writing the first novel, Silent City, we were talking and he was like, what are you up to? And I said, well, I'm writing this book on the side. He said, when you're done, I will blurb it. Just tell me and I'll do it. I mean, he read it, but that was really validating and yeah. uh, huge. And he didn't have to do that. Well, you know, Miami is one of those kinds of places where the writing community here is very, very, the writing community is extremely generous, I think. Yeah. Now, you went to FIU for a little while, mm -hmm. right? Into, yeah. In the writing program? No, I was an English lit major. Oh, you were an yeah, in, yeah, Oh, yeah. I thought you, you were getting an MFA. No, I did. I, you know, I, I joke about this with Lynn Barrett, who's a friend, who now we've, we've become friends over the years, is that I was probably like her worst creative writing <laughs> student. And I think she was frustrated because I think she saw, she was like, you're good. You know, maybe you could come to class. <laughs> um, and, um, but she's great. And that whole program is so impressive. And uh, I've chatted with her. I've become friends with other graduates of the program over time. So... So tell me, you know, again, I told you I was going to get exhausted talking to you no, about no, no, all this, this other good. stuff yeah. as well. So tell me about your Star Wars stuff, too. So, I mean, Star Wars, I'll be doing a Star Wars Poe Dameron book, which is coming out in August. Um, and basically the idea is that it will explore his time um, before you meet him in the, the new movies. So um, kind of what makes, what leads him into those movies. So that was, a, that's a huge honor and <laughs> i'm excited to do it um i know they're gonna ramp up their like pr machine for is that coming out with pocketbooks or uh it's coming out with disney yeah oh, Disney's yeah yeah yeah, actually yeah, yeah. so it's coming out in august yeah oh, fantastic. yeah well congratulations yeah it's cool i know that they you're not allowed to talk too much about it yeah but it's uh, still early but i'm excited i, I think i can't believe it's happening <laughs> so you also beyond all of this mm -hmm. um it's you're, you're you're also we're all gonna hate you but you also play music right you know this like once you start having kids it's some hobbies have to fall by the wayside but when i first moved to new york i was in a band and we played gigs in brooklyn oh, you were in bands in yeah i was bands well. down here too um a lot of them were not successful but some were you know we put yeah. out an ep when i was in brooklyn uh, of new york um and music's always been a big part of just my life and kind of DNA, you know, so even now, I guess now not playing much, it'll still get into the comics and like using that language. Like, and I'll sometimes people reach out with suggestions or pitches and they know, you know, music is part of, and, and the people books are really seeped in music. You know, his, I wanted to make that a big part of his personality in the same way that, you know, Harry Bosch listens to jazz. Right. Pete loves indie rock and talking heads, the pixies and stuff like that, or Nico case. And, um, I'm just like, I, I really think about like found music when I'm writing, like what would he be putting on his car stereo or what's playing in his record player at his apartment? And you can't really have much music while he's getting shot at, but you know, there are no. these like little lulls uh, in the story. So talk, let's talk about uh, Pete. Okay. But let's first talk a little bit about, you know, you, you mentioned some of your influences. Uh, talk about some others that are outside of people, uh, writers who are associated with Miami, people like George Pelicanos, I know had quite an influence. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny when I first got my first gig, uh, in comics, I was, I had to move up to New York and they always say, you know, when, when your hobbies become your job, they're not as much fun. And, and that, that's partially true. I still love comics, but I started reading a lot of mystery novels for fun and I'd read some already, but, um, I read a lot of current 
you know, PI novels like George Pelicanos and Laura Lipman and uh, Dennis Lehane. And what really struck me about those authors is that not only were the characters really flawed, you know, they either was addiction or just personality or just their own issues. The stories really spoke to you in terms of setting. So you read a Pelicanos book, you're in DC. You, you see DC through his eyes. Um, the same with Boston and, and uh, Dorchester with the Dennis Lehane books. And I, you know, in the hubris of that time, I was like, well, I should try that for Miami. You know, and I was also really homesick. I had just moved up to New York. And New York is a very, right. I don't want to say brutal, though brutal is probably the best word. It's, un, you know, that first year is brutal. Did just, you move there alone? Yeah. Yeah. I just got an apartment. I had some family there. Like my aunt lives there. Um, but I didn't really know that many people. I got this tiny apartment in Queens. You know, with roommates, but with all the people surrounding you, I guess New York could be a very lonely place right. when you're first there. Yeah, because you're you are surrounded with people, but it's not people you can really communicate with. So, I was still homesick about Miami, and I was reading these books. And my first thought was, well, let me just try it, and um, that eventually became Silent City. Well, clearly, you were also you also remembered and were influenced by some of these Miami folks that were more contemporary, like James W. Hall. Mm -hmm. And I was very interested to to know and to read that you were influenced as well by Vicki Hendrick. Oh yeah, she's fantastic. That is, and her stuff is amazing, and not read very much. I feel like whenever and anyone, she's, asks, yeah, she's not even in Miami anymore. I don't right. think right now. We did, um, we did a Miami Noir at the bar at Miami Book Fair a right. few years back, and it was really an honor to have her read. And she read something from one of her new books, and um, I just had to take her aside and say thank you so much. Like I don't think this would happen. I don't think I would have become this writer if I hadn't read Miami Purity when I did because it was such a game-changing book for me because it wasn't just that it tonally matched those other books I was reading it just it talked about Miami in a way that I could recognize like the humidity the characters the kind of double crossing and and also the kind of the suburban malaise that sometimes can set in you know Miami's big people forget that people think oh Miami's just this like beach town it's big it's sprawling it's diverse it's complicated you know, I remember when Vicky wrote. You know, that was her first, yeah. her first novel, and it was uh, it was published by the great Sonny Mehta, who mm -hmm. just recently passed away, yeah. passed away, and you know, sadly. And Vicky, I think Sonny was so taken with just the things that you talked about, was taken taken with, you know, how it how it described a Miami that was the underbelly of Miami right. in a lot of ways, with a really kind of perverse sense of humor as well and an openness i mean it was as graphic and it was sexy anything, yeah. yeah as anything you would ever want to imagine but it never felt salacious it always felt like she was doing it with a brush you know she yeah. was very thoughtfully crafting these scenes and it felt it was you know it's like the, the postman always rings twice but from a miami perspective right was that was really, i think the idea yeah in yeah her mind and it was just so perfectly and i've read all i've read all her other stuff but you know that that book has holds a special place for me it's just the kind of thing that you know i don't know if i would be writing if it she hadn't written that, which, you know. That's quite a quite yeah. a great thing. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Pete then. How yeah. did Pete come to be? So I think right around that same time when I thought, you know, I'm going to try this. I, I really, I think this is the comic book influences that, that plays a part is I, I didn't read a lot of PI series where you saw the origin story or how these characters came to be. You know, like Raymond Chandler. Marlowe is there, you know, he's this kind of tainted knight and he exists that way, but you never find out what made Marlowe Marlowe or what made, um, you know, the Ross McDonald books, what made that character come to be. And, and I was really interested in showing the mistakes that a PI would make on the way and uh, making those mistakes in Miami. And I really wanted him to be Cuban and I really wanted him to have a realistic relationship with addiction. I didn't want it to be something where 
he just sidles up to the bar and knocks back a few martinis and suddenly he can drive off and save the day. And I didn't want him to save the day all the time. I wanted him to get beat up and like learn, eventually get better. So the whole arc, these five novels are really his story of not just becoming a PI, but becoming a person. You know, by the end, I don't want to spoil anything, but by the last book, you kind of say, okay, this is where he's going to leave off. Whether he's alive or dead, I leave that to the readers. But, you know, it's, I felt like it was a good point to just say. We've, we've so in essence, the whole arc of, of the series is the origin story right. of, of yeah, I was less interested in doing the kind of law and order episodic stories that, that you see in a lot of PI series and a lot of people do really well. But I was more interested in the character driven stuff where each book you see him take a leap, you know, from Silent City to Down the Darkest Street, he goes into recovery and down the darkest street, he kind of relapsed. And in the third book, you get this kind of Cuban history element to it. So each book is really whatever I'm obsessing over in that moment. Uh, and, you know, you kind of serve yourself as your initial audience, and then hopefully somebody else will be interested in what you're doing. Well, in the new one, I was very pleased to see that he decided that he wanted to have a bookstore yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was very pleased yeah. about that. It's a tough tough business. It's, it's a very know. tough yeah. business, and you did a really great job. Oh, good. Thanks, yeah. Um, so it's very realistic, too. Yeah, that was, you know, that was a, a nod to, I mean, you, you travel for these books and you promote them and you go to different bookstores and you know, it's a passion project, you know, it's a love of words and books and authors. And just to have a little sliver of that in this book was kind of a thank you to booksellers everywhere, indie booksellers. Well, we thank <laughs> yeah. you for that. And also he's got a really terrific, um, therapist in this one as well. Yeah, that was, um, that was part of the journey. And I think for him. You know, he is sober for most of the series, but that that comes with its own pratfalls and you don't necessarily fix all your problems. And I just had a realization after three books, I was like, he's been through a lot of stuff and he probably needs some help. And if he's smart enough, he'll get it. And uh, I didn't want his therapist to be the typical kind of foil for plot. I really wanted them to have a meaningful exchange and to kind of plant some seeds. So you have there's an initial scene where he's chatting with the therapist about you know, how he's never going to do this again. And she's kind of saying, well, you're working out, you're doing all this stuff that tells me you are going to do something. And then the book kind of kicks off after that. Um, but I really wanted someone to be a little bit of a gut check for him and kind of call him on his BS. Yeah, well, it's reminiscent of the Sopranos right. relationship. Yeah, but exactly. I think it be yours is as human, if not more human, in terms of the relationship that they have. Yeah, and I think anytime you go into therapy, you're looking for somebody to kind of tilt the frame a little bit and maybe give you a different perspective on, of the things that you're dealing with, like in the weeds. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted that scene to do to really. And, and she also has a great last name. So yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you'll you'll have to read the book yeah, to find out I don't why, spoil it. why why we're saying <laughs> that. So so Alex, with everything you're doing, what's and you're young, and so what's next? Oh, thanks. What's um, next? What's next is I'm finishing up the Star Wars novel, which is exciting, and I'm hoping we'll do another volume of The Black Ghost uh, for Comixology. And I'm working on a standalone, my first standalone crime novel, which um, I'm finishing up, and then once I'm done, I'll shop it around. But the idea is um, it's going to be a female protagonist. She's from Miami. She'll move up to New York, and she'll have to find she'll have to solve a crime that she wasn't expecting. It's to solve. She's not a PI. She's not an investigator. It just she's suddenly she stumbles. Huh? Yeah, she, she stumbles, stumbles into the situation where she has to play the role of amateur sleuth, um, and it'll be tonally gritty and dark. Um, but there'll be some elements that I want to kind of keep in my back pocket. But soon, um, tell me about um, how you discovered Polis books, or they discovered you, and and what is that relationship like? Oh, it's been great. They've been very supportive. And I knew Jason Pinter, who's the founder uh, of Polis. And, um, 
you know, once I knew that I, I published Silent City initially in 2013 with a very small house and it was the kind of situation where you don't have much distribution. I'm bringing books to bookstores and it was, you know, they were very supportive, but I, I really wanted to level up. I already had the second manuscript kind of in the can and I reached out to Jason and we met and, uh, you know, he seemed really simpatico. He was like, I'm a fan of these books and I will support you. And, and he's really been, he's provided this kind of great home for these books that will live on which is really nice to see paulus has an amazing list actually yeah i know that today at the bookshop you'll be with steph post for instance yeah and steph is like kind of we we joke she's like the other side of the coin like i do the dark miami you know metropolitan noir and she does this rural north florida stuff and we're both ending our series right around the same time um we had we'd always joked about doing a story where pete would meet up with judah cannon but yeah. that might have to wait <laughs> we would love for you to read a little bit oh sure of the book I'd be happy if that's to. something yeah. you'd like to do okay the section is called big exit january 1st 1984 you don't want to go in there osvaldito the deputy's words seemed to float in the air around the entrance to the room like fading smoke as Detective Osvaldo Valdez approached, the deputy backed away. Osvaldo knew he had little choice in the matter. He had to walk into the dim, dank hotel room that was already being cordoned off by yellow tape. The stuffy hallway, reeking of cheap cologne and sweat, had been cramped with uniforms in a forensics unit. But the room itself was empty, aside from the body splayed out near the far window. The woman, late thirties, skinny, brunette, hair cut short but not boyish, lay on the floor at an odd angle. Her head was twisted up, as if trying to look out the dirty, smudged window, the only source of natural light in the dingy hotel room. Osvaldo did his best to keep his footfalls light. He'd been on the Miami homicide team for a little, for a little over six months. His partner, Tino Vigil, was catching another body downtown. That left Osvaldo here in Overtown, feeling itchy and hot in the decrepit, decrepit Hampton House Hotel, checking on a body. The owner had called it in complaining that the man who'd rented the room had bailed, leaving him 50 bucks short. He'd prattled on about the noise, too, the screaming, more than your usual overtown kerfuffle, more than your usual New Year's Eve partying, too. Serious wailing, thuds, boom-boom crash, real loud, then dead quiet, too quiet. Osvaldo motioned over his shoulder for one of the uniformed officers, a kid named Mosher, to come in behind him. Don't touch anything yet, okay? Osvaldo said. I want to get a feel for it first. He stepped further into the room, his arms out a bit, palms open, as if trying to catch something, a sign of what had happened there. Static. Nothing. But then, something, as he stepped closer, and a sliver of the New Year's Day sun fell on the woman's face, bruised and bloodied, illuminating the dark purple marks around her neck, scratches streaking down toward her collarbone. Past the cuts and injuries, Osvaldo recognized something. A flicker of familiarity snapped at him. Fuck, he said, his eyes scanning the woman's face once more. Not just a woman, not just a Jane Doe, not anymore. He wheeled around. He felt himself heat up, a sheen of sweat spread over him, prickling his back, then his face. This can't be right. But he knew it was true. Mosher, who had been shadowing his movements, jerked back, surprised by Osvaldo's quick pivot. The detective looked at the younger man with his trimmed beard and eager eyes. Those will fade soon, Osvaldo thought. You'll become a zombie, just like the rest of us. The ones who survive. Get everyone out of here except essential personnel, Osvaldo said, his tone flat, eyes locked on Mosher, who nodded. And then get Carlos Broche on the phone, fast. 
I dare anyone who's just listened to that not to want to run out <laughs> and buy Miami Midnight, which is the final of the Pete Fernandez mysteries. And then you'll, you'll, I would actually, you'll just have to buy them all. Yeah. And I just, no you know, there's been binge watching. This is binge reading. Exactly. So just get through them all. Alex Segura, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was a treat and an honor.